Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's crystal ball time. It's your outlook for 2022 on the S&P 500. We'll do bottom three, top three. Bottom three, most bearish, less constructive. Morgan Stanley at 4,400. B of A at 46. Barclays at 48. Top three, Credit Suisse at 52. We've got Deutsche Bank at 52.50. And then you've got BMO, BMO at 5,300. And then rounding it out, just shaking up the whole table... Going number one, a new entry in the last 24 hours. John Stolfus goes to 53.30. He joins us now, the chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer. John, let's start here. Where did the extra 30 points come from? <laughs> and what did Brian Bowski do to you to upset you? Well, Bowski and I are old pals from way back, even though we haven't talked with each other for about a year, just pre-pandemic. We ran into each other outside of the exchange. He was coming out. I was going into the exchange. Uh, but we haven't spoken. But when I looked at it, uh, I just looked at the numbers. We were looking at the momentum that we've been seeing in these rallies, uh, the broadening of interest in equities, and the propensity of the indexes to essentially self-correct in the course of rotations and rebalancing that can happen day to day, not waiting for week to week or month to month. Uh, so a healthy market, the economy coming back, uh, we just wanted to edge it up a little bit. John, what you had to say about the Fed got my attention. We do not expect the Fed to slam on the brakes, but rather we look for the central bank to pump the brakes as lightly as it can. John, what separates you and others? Why do you see it as a central bank that's going to step on the brake? Just pump them as lightly as they can. Jonathan, I think it's the context that we bring to it. You know, this is uh, I'm 38 years uh, on Wall Street. Uh, so I remember the Alan Greenspan era. Gosh, I even remember Volcker. Uh, and so, you know, it, this is a, this is the Bernanke legacy of Federal Reserve. It's highly sensitive when it when it addresses its its mandate of full employment uh, and uh, and and uh, a stable uh, economy to to achieve that. And so, we think they're going to be very careful. Uh, but the irony, though, of all of this is the market is freaking out because the Fed is is, is getting really uh, considering you know tapering at a more aggressive pace. The market has been dying for the Fed to, to taper. It says that if the Fed's behind the curve, give it a break and let it taper and, and it'll get to actually uh, probably uh, tweak the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the benchmark rate, uh, the Fed funds rate, probably later next year, six months to uh, maybe nine months out from where we are now. You're touching on one of the biggest debates on Wall Street right now. Does a faster taper mean a sooner rate hike? And a lot of people seem to think that the answer is yes. And can they potentially separate those two a little bit more? At tomorrow's press conference is a key question. My issue, though, given this call, is that you're looking for 12% earnings growth for the S&P 500, a real robust consumer uh, throughout 2022, and yet a Fed that remains patient and has the confidence to do so despite this robust data. Can you explain, sort of dovetail those ideas? Well, we, we think that the uh, right now, uh, you know, we, we think people are overspending. We think the, the, uh, the what do you call the, the uh, stimmy checks, uh, uh, the, the the amount people saved when they weren't commuting to work, what, what, what have you. People have more money uh, on a relative basis, depending upon where they fall in the income strata. 
uh, and, and they're spending it, you know, right now at a certain pace. But the effects of uh, gas, the gasoline pump uh, prices going up, the, the effects of prices of meat, poultry and, and pork, et cetera, all of this uh, adds up. The, the consumer will bring it in a little bit, but the consumer is not going to stop spending. My big thing has always been don't don't bet against the American consumer, as well as don't think that technology is going to end and we're going back to the abacus or the slide rule. <laughs> don't bet against the consumer. Don't bet against, in some ways, the supply chain that's been affecting the consumer as well, John. I'm interested in whether you see any risk to your overall focus from Omicron from any way or indeed the way in which the consumer reacts to that. I've got to say, it, 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 the Omicron risk is 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 significant. Uh, it, in some ways, it's just as to how it is uh, it, it it is uh, looked at from afar by people who are not epidemiologists. Uh, it uh, by the the risk and and the 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 element that can cause uh, over over concern. I say let's leave it to science. So far, science has done an incredible job. If we look back to 2020, when people thought it was going to take two years, four years, or who knows when for a vaccine of efficacy, we've come a long way, uh, technology boosting that. And uh, then, I'm sorry, I, I missed the, the next part of the question. Oh, the consumer? Was that it? Yeah, the consumer has shown, you know, uh, the consumer has shown a great desire to shop, whether they do it online or bricks and mortar or a mix of both. Uh, the consumer wants to get back to the next new normal or get to the next new normal, because I don't think we're going back to what the normal was on uh, the memory of this pandemic for quite a few years before people forget it. So are you going to call for Apple to be a four trillion dollar company by the end of 2022? <laughs> uh, well, it, you know, uh, the firm doesn't like me to comment on, on specific names. Because That's basically the index. <laughs> uh, but but needless to say, related to technology, we think technology continues to be uh, something that, that uh, investors want to have exposure to. You have to you have to break up what you're looking at. We like more established companies. We think the newer ones, it's, it's terrific for risk and volatility. But if that's what you want, know that you're not going to get those steady earnings, steady cash flow uh, process of innovation and a, uh, a, a within a culture within a corporation that's established and a certain relationship with shareholders that gives you less volatility, uh, generally speaking. John, you squeezed out the extra 30 points. You are the most bullish on a street going into next year. John, it's great to catch up, sir, as always. John Stolfus there of Oppenheimer. Thank you, John. Thank you, sir. We're going to talk to the biggest bull on the street a little bit later. We have to talk to the biggest bear on the street as well. 4,400, the price target over at Morgan Stanley. And we can catch up with Dan Skelly, the head of market research and strategy at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Different side of the business, Dan, but you work very closely with Mike Wilson, who straddles both sides of the business. So let's talk about the call for a lower equity market. What I hear from you guys going through the research is not a less constructive view per se on earnings, but it's about the multiple, Dan. What's going to bring that multiple down? Dan, what is it about the multiple that you're focused on at the moment? That's exactly right, Jonathan. Good morning and good to see you. Happy holidays to you and the team. So, look, as we've been saying for the last several months, uh, we think there's more room to go on multiple contraction. And that has historically been the case, Jonathan, as we've worked through mid-cycle transitions. We think it is basically the same scenario this time around. Okay, Even though we've had extraordinary circumstances in this particular cycle, given covid given lockdowns and reopenings, et cetera, we think things are somewhat uh, tracking to a normal historical context, which has seen the multiple come down anywhere between 
10 to 15 percent as mid-cycle transitions culminate in the past. So we do think there's more room to go on valuation. And as uh, to this point, you said we recently halved our exposure to the equity-like asset classes. Can you give us a sense of where you put the money as you took down your exposure? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, Lisa. So we put some money into alternatives. We've also put some money into a shorter duration credit as well, some high quality credit. And look, valuations and spreads aren't uh, exceedingly undemanding there either, but we do think that could offer some ballast in portfolios as we go into a little bit more volatile period. You know, as you well know, we've been through this anomalous uh, smooth sale upwards over the last, call it 16 to 18 months, where we really haven't had your typical 10% correction in the, in the S&P. And we don't think that's gonna continue through the winter months. Okay, so brace for a 10, 15% correction. What gets us there? What's the snap element that suddenly drives us lower? Is there, I mean, we get PPI data a little bit later today. I know inflation has been a key area of risk you're looking at. Correct, Caroline. And so we, we do see a bit of a, a gradual unwind here. And, and positioning has already started to move that way, particularly when you look at some of the faster moving institutional funds out there. Positioning has started to lighten up more recently. Uh, but we think it's simply the market acknowledging that the Fed is about to announce this week, the big event, of course, about to announce a much faster uh, taper schedule that will conclude in March. Uh, that's going to obviously remove the maximum accommodative stance that we've had. And even though folks have known about this, they've been preparing for it, I think there's a difference uh, in terms of the actual effect in markets over the next several months. Dan, where in this equity market do you like? I know there's going to be much yeah. more emphasis from you and the team at individual names, individual sectors. Where do you like right now? Jonathan, in this type of backdrop, we favor defensive, high-quality names. Okay, so from a sector's perspective, think healthcare which is trading extremely cheap after uh, underperforming this year, but has all the benefits of innovation and, and growth, but it's not priced like many of the growth sectors. Uh, think areas like consumer staples. I know pricing pre uh, uh, power was just mentioned earlier. You have to be selective. Not every global consumer franchise has pricing, so you have to do the bottom-up work. And then, Jonathan, on the other end of the barbell, we're actually not shying away from growth names either, except here's the nuance. We want to focus very much so on growth at a reasonable price. We're looking at actually names we've added to our team's portfolios recently, names like MasterCard, names like T-Mobile. These are actually structural growers that are significantly off their 52-week highs. And if we do get into an environment where rates finally start to back up into 2022, they won't be as acutely sensitive to higher rates as some of the really high multiple growth stocks that work this year. Dan, you and others have been talking about a 10 to 15% correction, which is overdue for a while. A lot of people have been saying things have been flying a little too high for too long to be really justified in any fundamental level. And yet every dip has been buyable and that dip doesn't matter how small it is, it is a buyable dip. Has that made you rethink your thesis based on the fact that you're seeing cash piles increase in the, at least according to the fund manager survey coming out of Bank of America and a sense of caution among some of your peers? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fair point, Lisa. One thing I would say is that particular dynamic in and of itself has not made us back away from the call or change the call. We do acknowledge that the individual investor in particular, given the amount of 
in, in particular, the millennial wealth coming in and the new investors coming in to access this market via technology and apps and so forth, that has been a particularly strong force and frankly higher than we would have presumed uh, coming into this year. Uh, but nonetheless, that hasn't made us change the call. What would help us change the call or make us adjust the call would be number one, we're wrong on rates, right? So instead of getting to 2% or 2.1%, which is Matt Hornback's call, we, we hang out around these levels and equity risk premium for the S&P aren't as challenged. And number two, we've been calling for a bit of a pushback or a slowdown in the consumer. The consumer has eaten through a tremendous amount of the savings that you just referenced. And so they've also been pulling forward tremendous demand for particularly durable goods, given we've been all at home for, for so, so long. We don't see some of those trends continuing as well. And that's part of our more uh, near-term caution. That being said, if we're wrong about rates, if we're wrong about the consumer, those would be some yep. of the aspects that would change our call. Dan, can I just say thank you? You've been a good friend of this show, a wonderful partner over the last year. Send our best to to Mike, to Alan, to Matt, to Lisa Shallot. Just fantastic, Dan, as always. And good to hear from you, My sir. My pleasure. Dan Skelly, thank you. Enjoy the holidays and send our best to the team. Let's begin with liftoff. Mike McKee, we can do that right now with Mike Gapen, the chief U.S. economist at Barclays. Mike Gapen, I said you were at May threatening to move to March. You've already done it. March is the call now for liftoff. Mike, what separates you and the pack? You're at March. The pack's in the summer, June out to September. Good morning, Jonathan and Lisa. Thank you for having me on. I, I think we would say it's, it's exactly what has been just mentioned, the concern about inflation, where inflation is coming in. And I'd say it's a twofold argument for, for us. One is the, the November minutes say risk management is now the guiding principle of monetary policy. And, and in the extreme, that means you don't necessarily need to meet all your liftoff criterion to move rates higher. You can just be worried about the risk of higher inflation. So that's one argument. The second would be that employment report that we, we received last week, a very solid decline in the unemployment rate, a one percentage point decline in the unemployment rate since August. And we think other members will think, hey, we're probably a lot closer to maximum employment than we thought before. The economy is accelerating fairly rapidly in the, in the fourth quarter. So Omicron concerns aside, which are certainly valid, there's a lot of momentum. Labor market progress has been healthy. If you're concerned about inflation, we think that puts March on the table. So Mike, that would be our argument. Michael, we were just hearing from Jonathan Stolzfus over at Oppenheimer, and he was saying he thinks it's different to accelerate the taper from saying that we're going to raise rates sooner uh, at the Federal Reserve. What do you say in contrast to that with your call going very much against that, given the fact that the Fed has basically been saying something of that nature until a right. sharp pivot in the past couple of weeks? Right. So prior to this, you know, very sharp pivot, I would say that that was that was our view, too, that you could do risk management to start taper to create optionality. But then you'd kind of watch the data under your feet as it came in in terms of deciding when to lift off. So risk management was about the beginning of taper, not necessarily about rate hikes. But if risk management is now the guiding principle in the conduct of monetary policy, then tapering the pace of taper, the start of hikes, the pace of hikes, all that can be done for risk management purposes. Again, it's about the risk of higher inflation, not necessarily where current inflation is. 
So you could argue that a decision to taper and taper more quickly does send a signal about your willingness to hike rates. So I think it would be, my response to that would be, it's about you know, how much you think risk management is the umbrella over all policy choices at this point in time. How significant is it, from your perspective, Mike, that we have seen such aggressive rhetoric from former Fed officials, including former Uber doves, like a former Minneapolis Fed president, Coach Lakota, coming out this morning and basically saying the Fed is risking a 1965 type scenario where inflation looks containable and ends up not being so? Well, I, I think they're, they're, it's a reflection of the pressure that they're getting across the board. So you saw the comments from, from Congress, both sides of the aisle, stating concerns about inflation for, for different reasons, wanting the Fed to respond to it. So it, it's, this isn't, you know, necess- what I'd say a partisan issue. It's coming from your kind of, you know, your traditional economists, your non-orthodox economists. It's coming from Republicans and Democrats in Congress. There is a, a chorus of calls for the Fed to respond to this. I, I personally think, or we think, the risk of a 60s or 70s style inflation story is overblown. But that doesn't mean the Fed shouldn't be responding to what they see are are risks to inflation in the near term. We think inflation ultimately will come down and and the Fed will will have its credibility maintained in terms of achieving 2% outcomes over over the long term. I I just think the risks of a, a wage price spiral are overblown and the quicker the Fed moves, the the less likely that that it's to, to come to play. Mike, Caroline in London here, and I'm interested in how much the other side of the Fed's mandate was, of course, inclusive jobs market overall. And that's had to be, to a certain extent, put on the back burner because inflation perhaps eats into inequality even further. But how much do you think that becomes a focus point once more? Caroline, that's a, it's a great point because it... Risk management, again, just to come back to this, means you may very well be lifting off even though you might not think you're at maximum employment. And the committees hasn't really gone to great lengths to clarify to you what broad-based and inclusive means. It doesn't really even define what full employment is in its statement of longer-run policy goals. It's more of a we'll know it when when we see it. So optically, it, it could look, you know, difficult for them where they're raising rates, but still several million workers are, are out of the workforce and participation is subdued. It's, a, it's not a great position for them to be in, but it's the one where, where they're in currently. What I would say is if inflation does start coming down rapidly over the course of 2022, then maybe they pause any rate hike cycle that they've started and, and kind of shift back in the direction of saying, well, now it'll be a little bit easier for us to ride out an expansion and improve labor market outcomes. So right now it's about heading off risks of inflation, but there are worlds in which they could shift back to, to promote full employment. How much could the strength in the dollar be the thing that ekes away at inflation at that rapid rate in 2022? Uh, So that's a great question, because in the last cycle, of course, any kind of movement to hike rates came uh, with with a lot of dollar appreciation, which fed back into lower growth and lower inflation outcomes. Um, At least the Fed's shift in kind of our change in call brings, brings our rhetoric and the Fed's communication in line with where markets are. So we're not necessarily thinking a pivot at this point or rate hikes in 2022 may bring about a much stronger dollar. Uh, so I think you'd have, to, you'd have to have the Fed maybe moving more rapidly than the market is expecting. I don't think that, that we're there yet. So I think it's less likely, uh, but certainly it's something that we're watching out for. I would say over the long term, 
it's part of the reason why the market thinks the terminal rate is, is lower, that, that the Fed will be raising rates more than other developed economies, which would likely keep the dollar buoyant over time. So I think it is part of the story on the terminal rate, but maybe not in the near-term performance of the economy. Uh, Michael Capen, work with me here. Year over at 3.30 Eastern tomorrow. <laughs> yeah? Send the team home. Are we done for the year? Pretty much, yeah. Wait, Thanks, Mike. Appreciate what? it. Wait, seriously? Yeah. Of course. Like, come on. What happens if something happens at ECB or Bank of England? They're on standby. Oh, are you? Well, I, I'm the U.S. economist. There you go. <laughs> so it well doesn't said, matter. Mike Capen of Barclays. <laughs> Kathy Jones joins us now, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Charles Schwab. Kathy, we've got to talk about this bond market. We went through it with Lisa. 2016, when we were at these levels, we were talking about a global recession. What are we doing now? Yeah, it's really a conundrum, I think, for the Fed, because as they try to signal that they're tightening policy, all we get is a flatter yield curve and lower long-term rates. And I think that that tells you that the market's view is that Inflation isn't going to last a long time and that growth will decelerate next year and uh, that we have enough demand at the long end of the curve to prevent yields from rising very much. So it places a lot of pressure on the Fed. How high can they go in terms of rate hikes and not invert the yield curve? And that's going to be probably the biggest problem they face over the next uh, 12 months. Kathy, what would you say to the argument that the bond market... I don't want to say is wrong, but is distorted by quantitative easing, by the savings glut, by what's going on overseas. Yeah, I don't think it's distorted, but those are certainly factual. Um, that's factual evidence for that can contribute to low bond yields. And clearly, if there's one surprise that the Fed could pull off, it would be quantitative tightening, right? If they really wanted to see long-term rates move up, they could start selling bonds and reducing the size of the balance sheet. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but that would certainly be one way to do it. But I think the, the collective wisdom of the market here is that, yeah, we have a lot of factors holding down long-term rates. The global um, savings glut isn't going to go away tomorrow. Aging populations aren't going to disappear tomorrow. And um, that continues to make demand at the long end of the curve for, you know, 20, 30-year paper very, very strong. And that's the reality uh, in the bond market. I think that's reflected in this flattening curve. And that's why you call a terminal rate of 1.75%, Kathy. Talk to us, therefore, about looking out further along the risk spectrum. How much are we going to see an outperformance of potentially high yield if you are going to see such tamed long end? In government, yeah, you know, high yield um, and and investment grade have been doing great. Um, again, credit has good strong fundamentals here. Uh, the problem is, of course, the yield, right? So you're not getting much spread over treasuries to take that risk. Mm. Um, but I, I, it's hard to see in this environment that credit won't continue to outperform treasuries uh, in 2022. It's really just a question of how much risk you want to take in terms of moving into the lower credits for the event that we get some sort of an accident in the market, or certainly if we were to get an inverted yield curve, that would be a negative signal. So it's all good except the yield uh, in the credit world, but I do think it will outperform in 2022. Kathy, just finally, something Lisa and I talked about in the last hour. What would a hawkish surprise look like tomorrow at the Federal Reserve? Can you just give us a little bit more detail on that, on how they could surprise hawkishly the FOMC? Yeah, I, I think, you know, they could raise that terminal rate. I'm not sure that the result would be um, a sell-off at the long end. It might actually be 
uh, a rally at the long end if they did that, but they could move up that terminal rate. Um, or again, quantitative tightening. They, they could start announcing roll off uh, sooner rather than later. And I think that that would be a surprise uh, to the market. Kathy, a ton of people writing in. Do you know what they miss? Do you know what they miss the most? She knows. Mm. She knows. <laughs> the piano. They miss the piano. Can Schwab it's not let the piano into the office? <laughs> that might be a, a heavy lift. Uh, Open yeah. a window. Oh. We'll sort the crane out for next time. <laughs> Kathy Jones and Kathy, thank you for everything this year. Just absolutely wonderful on this show and others. Just a wonderful partner as we work through some really, really complex issues. are releasing two separate studies of the COVID-19 pill. Uh, they talked about how they do seem to reduce hospitalizations and they prevent 89% of hospitalizations in unvaccinated individuals. However, they do not reduce symptoms in healthier individuals. Uh, talking about uh, this is the main key. How much do we start to pay attention to hospitalizations and not infections? When do we cross that threshold into treating this like the common cold rather than something that must be stopped at all costs? Let's start the conversation right there with Dr. Amish Adalcha, the senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for House Security. Doctor, always good to catch up with you, sir. Talisa's question, how much closer are we to that ultimate objective, treating this like the common cold? Every time we get a new tool to use to treat people, to keep them out of the hospital, we get closer to that goal. And I think that the antiviral from Pfizer is one of those tools because it has a tremendous ability to prevent people from becoming hospitalized. And that is what this is all about. That's what flattening the curve was about, preserving hospital capacity. So I do think we're getting there. Obviously, the vaccine is the best way to get there. And we still have about 40% of the population that's not vaccinated, including 60 million people eligible to be vaccinated. That's the biggest thing. But I think the antiviral does bring us a lot closer to that. We are looking also at the Omicron variant and anecdotal data out of South Africa showing that perhaps it is less virulent. How much are we looking at that being a breaking point to the upside and getting us out of the pandemic? Have you gotten enough data to get a sense of that yet? The fact that all we're hearing about are mostly milder cases, not completely mild, there are people being hospitalized, but less ICU use, less oxygen use, I think that's reassuring because we haven't heard anything different. We know that in the US, I think only one of our cases had been hospitalized. It's a little bit difficult, though, to completely extrapolate that to the rest of the world or even to this country because South Africa is a country that's a little bit younger, has different comorbid conditions. We want more data on unvaccinated people, especially high risk. But it does seem that for the unvaccinated, it still might be just the same as Delta, and we may be trading Delta for Omicron. But if it's if it's more transmissible, but even just a, just a little bit less virulent, it may end up being a wash overall for what we're dealing with. So it all depends on how this all plays out in, in the U.S. We've been talking about how how the two-course dose of either the Pfizer, BioNTech, or the Moderna vaccine does seem to have some preventative aspect against Omicron in terms of how ill you get, but not necessarily infection. It seems a lot less efficacious. People are saying that the booster is really important. I know you said you did not get a booster. Have you changed your mind based on some of the incoming data? No, I haven't because I'm, I'm 46 years old. I don't have any comorbid conditions, and I think that a booster will just inevitably just 
kick a, uh, a breakthrough infection down the road with these first generation vaccines. If you're somebody that's above the age of 65, have a high risk condition, got the J&J &J vaccine, those people absolutely should be getting boosted today. But for healthy people, I think that's not gonna change the trajectory of Omicron. It's not gonna prevent Omicron from hitting our hospitals. What's gonna prevent Omicron from causing a problem are first and second doses. And as you said, the Pfizer data shows that people are protected against what matters, severe disease with a two dose regimen if, if you're healthy. And I think that's what we need to be emphasizing because if we continue to boost to prevent mild illness, I don't think that this ever really ends. And I think we really have to focus on severe disease. And maybe there'll be a second generation vaccine that gives us different types of protection than our first generation vaccines. And, and, and that, that will change the equation. But right now I haven't seen anything that changes what I would say for, for, healthy, for healthy people. I might be in the minority, but there, there are a few of us that, that really are focused on hospitalizations and not so much preventing mild disease with these vaccines. Okay, so Dr. Adalger, as I sit here in the United Kingdom and I see the absolute focus on booster shots, perhaps over and above getting the unvaccinated with the first realm of injections, how does that pan out in the UK? Because we were talking to Robert Reid a little bit earlier, who's one of the advisors to the government, and he's saying that the reason is to stop the transmissibility, to prevent people getting and being able to spread if you help with the boosters. But does that not work from your mind's eye? It's not going to be the most significant way to stop spread. The best way to stop sp spread is going to still be to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. Because if you look, it's not a surprise that this variant arose likely in Southern Africa where vaccination rates are very low. So if everybody in the UK that was eligible for a booster got boosted today, you would still have an Omicron problem. And the same is true in the United States. If everybody that's eligible to get boosted, we still would have hospitals busting at the seams in many rural uh, counties. This is, this is really about reaching the unvaccinated. And many policymakers have given up, so they continue to boost the people that are already vaccinated. But that's of much less value than getting first and second doses into people. And I think that we, they've recalibrated to focus on cases because they've given up on the unvaccinated. And I think we can't give up on the unvaccinated because I have to work in the hospital, and that's all I deal with. I don't deal with boosted people coming into the hospital hospital or fully vaccinated people coming into the hospital. I deal with people who lack first and second doses. And if we want to end this mm. pandemic, we have to get first and second doses into people in the US, the UK and all around the world. Doctor, what have been the most effective ways of doing that bar making it illegal not to? From your perspective, what are the ways you convince your patients who are still thinking and on the on, on the fence about it to a certain degree? The only thing you can do is talk to them one-on-one -on -one and try and figure out what bit of misinformation they swallowed. Offer them alternatives. Look at their concerns. Maybe they don't want an mRNA vaccine, so you can, you can direct them towards a J&J &J vaccine or vice versa. Get them to get at least one dose and then maybe wait a little bit longer to get the second dose. There's ways to work with people, but you have to actually sit down and do it. It's not me on television that gets people vaccinated. It's actually when I'm sitting in a, in a room saying, what are your concerns? And let me, let's go through the ingredient list. Let's go through this. That's how it really works on a, on a detail basis just like if somebody's making a, a purchase that you have to go through all of the, their questions and then you I think you do nudge them uh, appropriately but we didn't do that we did a lot of pontificating and uh, talking on high and I don't think that really moved that group of people who were vaccine hesitant doctor appreciate your time sir and always your perspective on what's happening inside the room dr. Amish Adalja there of Johns Hopkins this is the Bloomberg surveillance podcast thanks for listening Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal.
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomer.